Take your Bibles, open to Philippians chapter 1. I've entitled my message, Ministry in the Face of Life or Death, because that's where we find ourselves in the Apostle Paul's life. So perspective is certainly a part of what is communicated in this passage of Scripture. A tired farmer began to look at his operation through critical eyes. It seemed everything was wrong, so he decided he was going to sell out and move in the town and move on to something else. So he engaged a realtor who came out and looked over his property as he led him around, and he was going to prepare an ad and put it in the newspaper. But before running the ad in the paper, he called the farmer to read the description to see if he liked it and it met his approval. The ad described the good location, the well-maintained house, the sturdy barns, the lush pasture land, the beautiful pond that was on the property, the fertile soil, the great view that he had over his farm, that pastoral setting. The farmer listened carefully and he said, read that to me again. And so he did. Finally, the farmer responded, don't print that ad in the paper. I've always wanted a place like that. I think I'm going to stay right where I am. That's perspective. Looking at it from a slightly different perspective than he did through his own set of lenses and problems. Sometimes when we're in the thick of things, sometimes when we're in the drudgery of duty and responsibility and the difficulties of life, it's easy to get cynical. It's easy to get downcast and really become negative about our circumstances and our life. In other words, our perspective greatly influences our attitude. Your perspective about where you are and who you are and the God who rules over you, your perspective greatly influences your attitude about everything that you do. You've heard me say probably many times, stinking thinking leads to lousy living. A wrong perspective, a wrong attitude, wrong thinking about our circumstances will inevitably come out of our mouth and really in our life. Our perspective greatly influences our attitude. The poet said it this way, One ship sails east and another west with the selfsame winds that blow. Tis the set of the sails and not the gales which determine the way we should go. Ships can sail contrary to the winds, It's the setting of their sails and the tacking that they do that can allow them to sail against the adverse winds. And that's true in life. We get that. And Paul is a wonderful example and illustration of that in the passage that's before us. First thing we see in this passage, verses 19 through 21, I'm putting in this heading, we must seek God in our circumstances. Let's reread those verses, 19 through 21. Paul says, for I know that this, this imprisonment is what he's referring to, his Roman imprisonment. For I know that this imprisonment will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, or which has characterized his path, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
We must seek God in our circumstances, and that's exactly what Paul was doing here. Paul had already faced unpleasant circumstances. We know that. He's recited some of the things that he's been through. He's already faced unpleasant circumstances, unreasonable people, and now an uncertain future. He's not positive as he writes to the Philippians from his Roman jail cell, we could say, what the future held. What does he do? He requests prayer from the Philippian believers. And he says that in verse 19. My deliverance will turn out through your prayers. His present imprisonment was soon to be followed up with a trial before a pagan judge, very possibly even Nero himself. As he appealed, earlier on he had said, I appeal to Caesar. That doesn't mean necessarily Caesar did all the trial cases, but he appealed to the Roman higher court. So he says, I appeal to Caesar. And they said, Herod says, to Caesar you will go. So very possibly he did stand trial before Nero. We don't know that. Probably been worse if he did. But he appeals to the highest court. And he doesn't know if he's going to be freed so he can minister for a while longer or if he's going to be killed and go home to heaven. That's his circumstances. That's his quandary. That's the precipice that he's at. But if he stands before a pagan judge, Paul knew his own human heart. Paul knew that in his own human weakness, he is fearful that maybe he will be ashamed of Christ. So he asked them to pray for him, that he would boldly proclaim Christ to whatever situation he's in, whatever judge he stands before, whatever court arraignment that he had, that he would boldly proclaim Christ. So he asked for their prayers in verse 19, fearful that he may not be as bold as he should be. We all know that. We all know that we get in circumstances and situations with people that that we maybe tend to shrink. And Paul knew his human nature, and he didn't want to do that. He wanted to boldly proclaim Christ even to his dying day. Notice in verse 20, he says, I have this hope according to my earnest expectations and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. And when the Bible talks about hope, probably many of you know, it's not talking about, you know, crossing our fingers or believing in the impossible or like maybe a child would say, I hope I get a pony for my birthday. That's not Bible hope. Hope is completely different. It is a divinely implanted response to the sure promises of God. A divinely implanted response that is here in our heart, here in our life, to the promises of God. It's taking the promises of God and personalizing them. Taking the promises of God and trusting and believing by faith that they're going to come to pass. So Paul says, I have a hope based upon what I know of God's character and what I know of my circumstances and what he's revealed to me that I'm going to be freed. I'm going to be delivered. And he says what? According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now Christ will be magnified in my body. Get that phrase. Magnified in my body. Magnified in my life, whether it be life or death. And if you stop and think about it, if you analyze the phrase and break down the, the verses here, Paul says, I want God to be magnified. How do we magnify God? 
The earth and the heavens can't contain God. How do you get something bigger, the idea behind magnify, if something that is already so big? God, even the universe can't contain God. He's everywhere. How do we magnify God? How can a human being ever magnify God? Well, stars are much bigger than a telescope. We understand that. Stars are much bigger than our, our solar system even. There are huge stars out there. So much bigger than our solar system, certainly much bigger than a telescope. And yet the telescope magnifies those stars and brings them closer. The believer's body is to be the telescope that brings Jesus Christ close to people. We are to be, your life and my life are the lenses that bring into focus what Jesus Christ is like, the unknown Christ. It brings into focus the unknown Christ that they do not know and brings a distant Christ near to people who don't know him. So we can magnify Christ by allowing people to see Christ through us, the lens, the scope of our lives. There are certain things in life I can't do if something important is missing. I can't send a letter without postage. It won't go anywhere. I can't use an ATM without a PIN number. It won't get any money. I can't experience victory without prayer. And Paul says that. Paul understands that. If I'm going to be victorious and I'm going to be freed, which is for your benefit, you need to pray. And this, this whole section of Scripture is kind of tied into Paul's request for prayer. And we sometimes come to the idea of prayer that, well, God's in charge. God is sovereign. He knows the end from the beginning. And why pray? God's got it all figured out, and it's all predetermined. Why pray? We can come to that false way of thinking. And by the way, probably inspired by the devil. Just uh, is a demotivator for us to pray. But this passage has some prayer principles here. I want you to notice them. Look at the first one, verse 19. Without prayer, I cannot receive divine help. He's requesting prayer. Without prayer, I cannot receive divine help. And that's what prayer delivers to us. We, we often talk about grace. God riches at Christ's expense is the acrostic that we often use. Grace is is God's unmerited favor to an unbeliever in forgiveness of his sin. God's grace is unmerited favor to a sinner. But for a Christian, it's God's undeserved blessing or uh, his divine enablement is how I like to say it. Grace is God's divine enablement for the believer. Unmerited favor for the sinner, divine enablement for the believer. And that comes to us in large part, his grace comes to us through prayer. So Paul is requesting prayer. Without prayer, I cannot receive divine help. Power from heaven is preceded by prayer on earth. We've all heard the illustration of uh, Spurgeon's furnace room. 
and the fact that Spurgeon had built the largest church in the world or God had used him to build the largest church in the world where 5,000 or more people would gather and he would show people the furnace room. The furnace room is where three, even up to 400 people would be praying before the service and then they'd be rotated out and another three to 400 would pray during the service. And he attributed it not to his oratorical skills or his biblical knowledge. It was He attributed it to the prayer warriors that gathered and prayed for the blessing upon God's service. So prayer is God's ordained means of working through human instrumentality. You can't really figure it out. God knows all. He's determined it all. Yeah, he's sovereign. But he chooses to work as we pray. The two go tandem together. God is in control. He knows all that's going to happen. But our prayers change circumstances. So he commands us to pray. And if we really understand scripture, we will want to pray because divine enablement comes through prayer. Verse 19. Second, without prayer, I will lack courage for matters of life and death. Verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always I will proclaim Christ. So he's asking for prayer that he would have boldness. Without prayer, I will lack courage for life and death situations. Uh, I need prayer. You need prayer. Someone has said it this way. Courage is fear that has said its prayers. Courage is fear that has said its prayers. Without prayer, I will lack courage. C, or the third thing, without prayer, I cannot find direction for my life. That's what he's saying in verses 22 through 24. We haven't read those, but he says, but if I live on in the flesh, that means fruit from my labors, and I'll stick around. And he says, verse 23, I'm hard-pressed. I want to I, I want to depart and be with Christ. That was just better for me personally, verse 24. But if I remain, uh, that's helpful for you. Without prayer, I'm not going to have direction in my life. God leads us certainly through his word, but he leads us through prayer. We, we can discern the fine points. There are some things that are very clear in Scripture. Flee immorality. Have no other gods before you, etc. There's many, many things that are very, very clear in Scripture. But some things become clear that are not so clear in Scripture as we pray. God leads us and His Holy Spirit illuminates our thinking. So without prayer, I can't find direction for my life. They're only resolve in prayer. And last, without prayer, I cannot contribute to the spiritual progress of others. Verses 25 and 26. We'll come to those. Without prayer, I can't really contribute to the spiritual progress of others. I can work. I can labor. Maybe I can study. I can do other things. I can serve and minister. But it has to be undergirded with prayer if it's going to have success and real genuine fruitfulness. A.W. Tozer said it this way. Prayer has been ordained for the helpless. Prayer and helplessness are inseparable. Only he who is helpless can truly pray. He says it about three different ways. That's why sometimes when we're sick and, and completely helpless, 
is when we really can focus in prayer. Somebody who's, who's facing life and death circumstances, maybe it's cancer, they, they really pray because they can't fix their circumstances. Even the doctor can't fix their circumstances. So that's when we really, really pray because we realize God has to work or I'm completely undone. I'm helpless. The real helpless people pray. And if we really saw ourselves in a spiritual sense, we'd realize how helpless we really are. Look at verse 21. Again, what a, what a statement. If you only memorize a handful of verses, this is one to memorize. Here in Philippians 1, verse 21, for to me, Paul's, Paul's kind of like this, for to me, to live is Christ. To die is heaven, gain, it's better. But while I'm here, I'm going to live. By the way, don't reverse those. Don't say, for to me, to live is gain. And to die is Christ. While I'm living, I'm going to get gain. And when I die, I'll go to be with God. Don't reverse those phrases or the end of those phrases. No, Paul is saying, for me to live is Christ. And someday when I die, whatever that might be, then I gain even more. I gain Christ. Don't reverse the phrases. What do you do with a man that has that kind of a creed? That kind of a motto? What can you do to him? What can Rome, what can Nero do to him when he says to me to live as a Christ-centered, Christ-empowered ministry? You can't stop a guy like that. To die, it means to be swallowed up in the unshielded glory of Christ that I've never really experienced, I've never really seen, but I'm looking forward to it. To, to die means I go into the presence of God. What do you do for a guy that has that kind of a creed, that kind of a motto? You can't stop him. Verse 21 becomes a, really a valuable test for our lives. Matter of fact, you could say, for me to live is blank, to die is blank. Do that. For me to live is blank, to die is blank. Let me give you some examples. For me to live is money, and to die is to leave it all behind. I hope that's not the way you're phrasing it structuring your life for me to live is money to die is to leave it all behind because you will or for me to live is pleasure and to die is to lose all the thrills to miss out on all the thrills of life all the pleasures of life that's a hedonist that's where many people are in our society or for me to live is fame and to die is to be forgotten, because you will be. For me to live is fame. Maybe it's Hollywood. Maybe it's a politician. Maybe it's a sports star. For me to live is fame, the accolade, but to die is to be forgotten. It's a bad way to live. Or for me to live is power, and to die is to lose it all, to lose that grip. So it's a good test. If there are any idols in our life, anything that is supplanting Christ, 
anything in our life that we're looking to to make us happy, to bring fulfillment or joy in our life. Anything that, that we're looking to that does those things is really an idol in our life. But Paul says, for me, to live is Christ, to glorify Christ. Look at the next few phrases, verses 22 through 26. We must surrender to God in our choices. That's exactly what Paul is showing us he is doing. I'll start reading again in verse 22. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, personally. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. What a man Paul was. He is willing to postpone heaven to help the Philippians grow. That's what he's saying. I've I've been in the Marion and Barron business now for over 40 years. Lots of times when people are sick and in pain and they can't really have any life of enjoyment, they say, why is God keeping me here? I've heard that question many times. Why doesn't God just let me die? Why can't I just go home to heaven? And Paul probably at times felt that way. He'd been shipwrecked, he'd been beaten, he'd been stoned, he'd been chased. He felt he had a, a body that was physically infirm and probably was racked by pain from all that he had been through. He felt the pressure of all the churches as well as the, being chased by the Jewish Judaizers uh, from one town to the other. The Romans hated him, the Jews hated him. Paul probably felt like, I would just like to go home to heaven. Probably how he felt. But he was willing to postpone heaven if it would help the Christians and he could plant more churches. If He'd be willing to put that off. That if he dies, Christ could be magnified in his death. And if he lives, the church is going to be benefited. So he looks at these two options. If I die, I'm personally benefited. If I live, the church is benefited. But if I die, I want Christ to be magnified even in my death, he says. So he says quite plainly, he's torn between those two choices, to depart or to remain. Matter of fact, he uses an interesting Greek word that's used in other places. It's uh, used to describe when a boat lifts its sails and it departs from the harbor. It's used to describe the taking down of a tent or the loosing of an oxen to take them out of the pen and they go out to graze or maybe even go out to pull the plow. He says, if I depart, it's like a ship setting sail. It's like the oxen being set loose. And I desire that. But if I depart, I look forward to that. But if it's that, even though it was more attractive to him personally, to remain on earth was more needful for the church. And he was willing to stay. And he states that he is hard-pressed. There's the Greek word that I'm going to mention there. He states he is hard-pressed, sunekomai, sunekomai, to be pulled in two different directions or feel pressure from two different directions. 
And Paul says, I feel the tug to go to heaven. I feel the tug that I should stay here for a while longer. He felt that kind of pressure, and he dealt with it. And a matter of fact, it seems, from what I have read, what some of the commentators note, it seems that God gave Paul assurance, even while he was writing this passage, this phrase. It seems that God gave Paul assurance of what he, his will was and what was going to be, even while he was writing this letter. In verse 25, he states, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So it seems as though while he's penning this letter, God seems to give him an assurance that he's going to remain and have a period of time to minister a while longer. Paul's confidence in being released from prison would not only bring about spiritual progress, but notice what he says in the last two verses of our text today, verses 25, 26. He says, it will bring joy for the believers. He says, and being confident of this, now that I I believe God's going to allow me to stay for a while longer, I know I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and for the joy of the faith. Certainly he's going to write more letters. He's going to minister to more people. But then he adds on this this joy in verse 26, and you're rejoicing for me. So he mentions twice this joy that is coming about. Our faith is certainly an intellectual faith. We have a growing body of knowledge of who God is and how he wants us to live, etc., doctrine. So our faith is intellectual, but it should also be emotional as well. And Paul was talking about the joy that he was now beginning to experience and they would experience because he was going to be left behind. I hope your body of knowledge in the Christian faith is continually growing week after week through your devotion, through adult Bible classes, through the preaching services that we have here. But I hope that your joy is increasing as well. That the longer you live the Christian life, the more you can rejoice in what God has done for you and and he's doing through you in the lives of other people. Hopefully when we sing the songs that we sing and and we meditate upon what Christ has done for us, tears well up in our eyes at times and we're moved emotionally at what we have in Christ Jesus. Tears of happiness, exuberant praises at our soon-to-be full redemption. We've been redeemed, but not fully redeemed until we get to glory. What is striking about Paul's evaluation is how deeply it is tied to the well-being of other believers. He didn't really talk about himself. Yeah, if I depart, that's great. But he ties his life and his well-being to others rather than his own self-denial that is motivated by the spiritual benefit of others is unquantifiable godliness. Let me say that again. Self-denial that is motivated by the spiritual benefit of others is unquantifiable godliness. That's the epitome of true godliness, thinking of others and their spiritual benefit which was the Apostle Paul. And nothing brings greater joy. Nothing brings greater blessing personally 
to believers that benefiting others spiritually. Last weekend, I had a guest at church I spent some hours with on Saturday, and then again on Monday. I stayed home from the office on Monday, and he was doing some work at our house. He was a Jehovah's Witness, grew up in the Jehovah's Witness, his parents, even his grandparents. His dad believes that he's one of the 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses that will make it to heaven. He rejected that recently. He saw the hypocrisy, the lies, the deceit. We began to talk, and and uh, I began to share with him. And one of the things I shared with him, because he had such uncertainty, was the joy and really the settled peace of being a Christian. Knowing that the most important question is settled. More important than who you marry, what you do for a living, or where you live, or all those kinds of things. Your vocation is the biggest question is settled. Where am I going to live for eternity? He's listened to some radio preachers and namely John MacArthur, and he's been listening to him, but he'd never had anyone show him how to be saved. So I walked him through the Romans road of salvation, and he got it. I think truly he'd already understood it. He hadn't seen it spelled out. One of the most biggest selling points in my mind was you can have full assurance, and you can know that heaven is your home. And not only that, you can have a wonderful life now. That doesn't mean that everything is figured out and no problems or anything, but you can have a wonderful life now. We just talked on and on. Folks, when people see joy in our life, they're inevitably drawn to that, like flies to honey, because our world is devoid of anything that has lasting joy, lasting peace, answers to the big questions of life. And hopefully, it's coming out in our life. It's coming out through our countenance, our speaking, our other opportunities. Obviously, it came out in Paul's life. All that we have, whether we live or we die, it's in God's hands. Let me close with this. Some of you know who John Payton was. Not Patton, but John Payton. He was one of the early missionaries out of Great Britain. When Great Britain was experiencing a burgeoning number of missionaries, at one point, you had to stand in line. You had to get on a waiting list as a missionary for a ship to take you where you wanted to go. There were so many missionaries going out of England. An aging Christian said to John Payton, John Payton's home church, who was preparing to go to the missionaries in the South Pacific Islands called New Hebrides, where they were known for their cannibals. He said, you will be eaten by cannibals, he said to John Payton. So will your wife, the little ones that God has given you. Payton replied, God gave him a real presence of mind. And he didn't reply disrespectfully, but he replied very straightforwardly. He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now. And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, and there you will be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in that great day, the great day of the resurrection, when my resurrected body will rise as fair as yours, in the likeness of our soon-coming Redeemer. He says, whether I'm eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms, it's not a problem for God. I just want to glorify God with my life, 
and bring others to a saving knowledge of him, which brings joy. So let me just conclude here. What is Paul telling us? Put Christ first. Put the gospel first. Put others first. It's the ticket to joyful Christian living. Not self-centered living, not narcissistic living, not thinking about all the things I want or want to experience. It's putting Christ first, others first, the gospel first. Let's pray. Father, I would pray that all of us, myself and everyone here could pray for to me to live is Christ. He's going to be magnified in our life. And to die, we realize, we understand, to die is great gain. The riches of heaven, the companionship of Christ, the fellowship with our loved ones who preceded us. That's gain. That's the real kind of gain. You've told us to go after the right things, to get gain. You're not against getting gain, but getting eternal gain. We get that. So help us to live for you, to live for others, to live for the gospel. If there's someone here today who doesn't know Jesus Christ as Savior, this could be your most important opportunity, opportunity to settle the matter of your soul's salvation, your eternal destiny. You can settle that today by allowing us to show you from the Word. Maybe, maybe like Michael, maybe you've done that, but no one's ever clarified it for you, help you settle it and know for sure and having a, what we sometimes say a no-so salvation. Allow us to help you with that. Christian, you know instinctively, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, that the only fulfilling life is living for Christ. And if that is in the way, something's in the way of you doing that, settle it today. Put it behind you. Put God in first place. Make him the Lord, as we heard in Sunday school, the Adonai, the Lord of lords of your life. So, Father, help us as we do business with you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.